I think Tyson missed his calling. That dude should be a voiceover guy, don't you think? That was awesome. Thank you, Tyson. Thank you, Jonah, Terry, everybody, right? Erica, thank you all for helping us this morning as we come together to worship. Um, it's great to have the people you can count on to do these things. So thank you all very much. So this morning, um, I'm going to open in prayer. And as soon as I get done, I'm going to ask all you guys to open your Bibles with me to Colossians 2, right? So I'm going to pray now, then we'll do that. So Lord God, as we come before you this morning, Lord, we just come with joyful hearts. Lord, as we've just sang, to be your people, to know that our sin is nailed to that cross, never to be counted to us. Lord, and it is with great joy that we open your word together. And I pray, Lord, that you will use your word to your glory and the growth of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so Colossians 2. Please open your Bibles there. So if you've been coming for a while, you'll know that Colossians is a book taught by the substitute teachers. Uh, <laughs> ben, Anthony, and I kind of rotate through teaching. So it's not taught every week. So what I'm going to do is just kind of touch on a few highlights, right? Look back and see a couple of the highlights that we've seen so far in chapter one of this incredible book. So Paul starts off by letting his readers know that he's praying for them and he's also rejoicing. He's rejoicing about the reports that he's receiving regarding their love for one another and, their and the growth of their faith. He also confirms that the gospel that they heard shared with them by Epaphras, Epaphras was truly and correctly taught. And he points to the fact that it's growing among them the same way it was around the world. And finally, he reminds them that in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Jesus to reconcile himself to himself all things by the blood of the cross. And that as a result of that, Jesus is worthy of the position of preeminence in their lives. So today, as we look at our passage, we're going to learn three lessons. Number one, the value of a brother or sister who faithfully struggles for the task of ensuring that believers have a correct understanding of the gospel. Number two, and I'll say these again later, so if you can't keep up, we'll give you a chance in a minute. Number two, why it is that all believers must have a correct understanding of the gospel. And finally, the fact that our correct understanding of the gospel can be a source of encouragement for those who give themselves to sharing it with us. So if you would, please stand with me and let's read Colossians 2, verses 1 to 5. And I know this is unusual, but that's what happens with substitute teachers. You do different things. And we may do other things different later. So here's what the Word of God says. Please listen. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love, to re reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order 
and the firmness of your faith in Christ. That's the word of the Lord. Please have a seat. So our lesson is going to begin in verses 1 through 3. And that's that first lesson, the value of a brother or sister who faithfully struggles for the sake of helping believers correctly understand the gospel. So I'm going to begin by telling you about somebody very near and dear to me. Her name is Suzette. When I was growing up, Suzette was my best friend's mom. And Suzette, Suzette's love for the Lord was no small thing to her. It was something she lived every single day. And she shared every single day. And I'll never forget the first time I went into her home and I saw the placards on the wall, right? We all have verses on our walls. And the Bible that was open on her table. And I thought, yep, we live in Texas. Every house has all that same stuff, right? But it didn't take long for me to realize those were not just decorations for Suzette. Suzette had four sons, right? My best friend being the oldest. And then like every two years, kind of like our family is, every two years they, they went down, right? So as a result, that house was full of boys all the time. We were coming and going. We were in all kinds of different states of activity. We were there all the time. And she never had any problem. If, when you came in the house, she didn't have any problem grabbing you and saying, here, come here and sit down by me. Right? And then she was going to share with you the scripture that she had open. Right? She wanted to talk about it with you. We also all went to the same church because it's a very small town. Right? And a lot of us went to that same church. And she'd sit down and ask you about the passage that the pastor had taught that week. You better be paying attention. Because she was going to challenge you on it, right? She wanted to make sure that we all understood something. Her home was a place where the gospel was shared. She loved the Lord with all of her heart, and she loved us with all of her heart. And she wanted to make sure that we understood the value of the gospel. She'd sit down and she'd ask us those questions. She would ask you, what are you reading? What are you studying? How are you spending your quiet time? How are you showing God how thankful you are for what he did for you? There was no doubt in my mind that Suzette loved me. And she loved every single young person that came into her house. And she showed it. And she showed it in the most incredible way possible by making sure we all understood what the Lord had done for us. And uh, there is no doubt that my spiritual health and the spiritual health of every one of us was the most important thing in the world to her. Now, I haven't seen her in over 25 years. And it, I get, it makes me sad to think that I might not see her again until I see her in glory. That's the type of saint that she was. Love her, and she still is. I shouldn't speak her of her in past tense. And I'm praying that uh, that. Maybe she'll outlive me, because that would just make me much happier. Um, but I will never forget her commitment to sharing Christ with us. She was somebody who truly cared for our souls, and I knew it. And I am so thankful to have had her in my life. And if you've ever had a Suzette in your life, you know what I'm talking about. And while I'm talking about it, let me challenge each of you. Be a Suzette for somebody. Be that person who is bold enough to share with young people, old people, it doesn't matter. Love the Lord enough, 
love other people enough to share the gospel with them at every opportunity. That's what Paul's encouraging. And that's what we're going to learn about here in just a little bit. So in our passage this morning, that's exactly what Paul is writing about. He's writing about the sentiment that Suzette lived out every day for us. He's expressing the passion that he has for believers and to see them grow in their faith. He wants his readers to understand that his desire for them is to be encouraged and to have their hearts united in love and that it's no small thing to him, but rather that it's something he struggles with. When you, when the, the word struggle here wasn't put there as an accident. I truly believe that it was put there because it was a significant to Paul. Paul didn't just work at it when he had time, right? He didn't pray for people and leave it at that. He didn't believe it to be true and just going to sit back and watch God do things. Paul struggled to see people encouraged and united in love. And that implies that encouragement and unity in the church was a priority for Paul, that he prayed for it. And he prayed for it earnestly, that it was something he was willing to give himself up for. As Paul's ministry demonstrates, his desire to see unity in the church and encouraging of one another in the church was something he was willing to give his life for. He was tortured, he was beaten, he was shipwrecked. We're going to go into all that in a little bit. But none of it mattered compared to him. He wanted to be encouraging people. And he wanted to see their hearts grown together. And that's how important it was for him. He saw the unity of, and, of, uh, and encouragement of believers and the unity around the gospel as something worthy of struggling over. But why do you think that was? I would give you two reasons. One, he loved believers. Plain and simple. Paul loved the church. And number two can be seen for us in verses 2 and 3 so that they can be prepared. Like a parent who struggles to make sure that their child is prepared to go out and face the temptations and the trials that this world is going to offer, Paul wanted to ensure that his readers had the training and tools that they needed to be successful at overcoming the deceit of the evil one. So how do we make application here? How do we encourage one another and knit our hearts together in love? There are three steps that I'm going to propose for your consideration. The first step is to recognize and affirm who we are in Christ. If we are trusting in Christ alone for our salvation, our sins have been forgiven. And I love that line in It Is Well. It says, my sin... Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. If you're trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, that's you. That applies to you. We struggle with sin, and we will continue to do so until we are perfected in Christ. But understand that while we still struggle with sin, God does not identify us as sinners. Rather, God identifies us as saints. And you can read each of Paul's letters, almost every single one of them. Who does he write to? The saints here, the saints there. 
That's who you are if you are trusting in Christ for your salvation. And we need to remember that. We need to consistently remember that. When you are challenged with, are you even a believer? Look at how you're behaving. You need to remember that. You need to remember how God sees you, a saint. And you need to remember that that sin does not rule you. You'll struggle with it. You'll have your challenges with it. But remember who you are in Christ. Because of his grace, God looks at us, instead, and instead of seeing sinners, he sees saints, as I mentioned. As saints, we are set apart for God. We are no longer condemned. We are his people, set apart and called to live for him. We have no need to fear the wrath of God anymore. Rather, we can celebrate the fact that he has drawn us to himself and we will spend eternity with him. We can celebrate the fact that nothing can separate us from his love and that we are of infinite value to him. He loved us enough to have sent his only son to live a perfect life on this earth and then to give that life as the only worthy blood sacrifice capable of washing away sin. That's a deep love that I don't think any of us can ever, ever fully grasp. However, if you're here today, or if you hear my voice some other time, and you are not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, you, if you consider yourself to be a good person, or if you're counting on your works to stand somehow before God and show him how righteous you are, you are not one of the saints that I'm referring to here. The forgiveness of Christ doesn't apply to you. You can't do enough to earn God's favor. On the contrary, if you deny a need for salvation, or if you believe that your works will justify you before a loving, holy, righteous God, you need to know that while he is love, he is also perfectly righteous and wholly just, which means that he is not able to have sin in his presence. And he cannot simply overlook it. Sin must be atoned for by the blood of a sacrifice. Anyone trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus, not trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus alone, is not only not a saint, but is identified by God as what Paul calls children of wrath in Ephesians 2.3. That is a significant term. What does it mean to be a child of wrath? It means that because of unatoned for sin, God sees a person as thoroughly characterized by sin. As a result, they're separated from the love of God and worthy of his wrath. This is not just my opinion. This is the word of God. It's documented in the Bible. It's declared in his word. But praise God, right? He has stepped in. He has provided a way of salvation. 
If you're not clear about your need for a Savior, if you think I'm a pretty good person and you're comparing yourself to others around you to determine whether or not you think you can satisfy God, please understand that you can't. And please don't leave here today without talking to either myself, Ben, or Anthony. We want to help you see your need. And we want to help you see how God has met that need for you. Again, we need to remember who he says we are. If you are a believer, you must remember who God says you are. He says you are forgiven saints. And we need to encourage one another with that truth at every single opportunity. Now, when God saved us, he adopted us into his family. We are now children of God. And we need to recognize that as children of God, we are part of a family now. We need to treat one another with the trust, love, respect, patience, and unending commitment that families are designed to demonstrate before God. Remember what we're asking here. We are looking for ways that we can encourage one another and that we can unify our hearts in love. And we do that by sharing with one another what you know about them. When you see your brother or sister is struggling, come alongside and remind them who they are. This isn't just some feel-good speech. This is, you are a blood-bought child of God. Remember that. Remember what he's done for you. Remember, nobody can snatch you from his hand. And when your brother or sister shares that with you, take it to heart. Let it be that encouragement that keeps you, that gives you the joy and the comfort. Remember your salvation. Preach the gospel to yourself every single day to remind yourself what God has done for you. So the second step in encouraging one another and knitting our hearts in love for Jesus and one another is simply to show up. Throughout his writings, whenever Paul couldn't be with the congregation, what does he say to them? He tells them he wishes he could be there. He's praying for them. He longs to see them, right? That's how we should feel about this body. Of when we have a chance to come together, we should take every opportunity to do so. We have brothers and sisters around the world who face great persecution for gathering. They we face Great persecution for something as simple as owning a book that every one of us has on our phones, right? I think if we did a, a poll, we'd probably at least have as many phone Bibles in the room as we have books, right? They face great persecution for that. But you know what? They get together anyway. They gather despite all of that. They understand the value of gathering together to hear the word of God taught, and to worship our Savior. And I am so grateful for each of you that faithfully come here to gather with us every single week. Now, none of us faces oppression, right? None of us has a government that says, at least right now, that you can't gather, you can't have Bibles, you can't preach the gospel. We are blessed that way. Take advantage of that blessing. Please be here. Gather together. There's always something, 
right? Isn't there always something? There's always some sort of distraction, right? Whether it's work or some special event we can attend or maybe we don't feel 100%. There's always going to be something. And there are a lot of legitimate reasons why you can't be here each week. But please, be very particular about what you let prevent you from gathering with the people of God. Because when you're not here and you don't hear Pastor Travis teaching or you don't get to hear the worship and see your brothers and sisters worshiping together and feel that joy together, you're missing out. There are a number of people who believe that all I need is my Bible and my relation with Jesus, right? That's all I need. That's all I got. That's all I need to have. They are so wrong. And Paul tells them that's not true. So please never miss those opportunities to gather in corporate worship. Third step to encouraging one another and knitting our hearts and love for Jesus and one another is engage with one another. Is it enough to just come? Come in at the last minute, hear the message, head out? That's, it's good for your soul to hear that. But what are you doing to encourage someone else? What are you doing to build those relationships, to unite your heart to those around you? You're missing an incredibly part, important part of being a believer. So for those of you who are married, you understand the value of spending time with that significant person, that person that you're interested in and you want to get to know better. Is it ever enough to say, okay, once a week for about five minutes, I'm going to spend some time with you and, you know, we're going to get to know each other really well. Does that work? (laughs) For about five minutes, right? No. And when you seriously want to get to know someone, you spend time with them. You commit to them, right? When I was getting to know Lynn, we spent hours out walking and talking and getting to know one another. We were building that relationship that wasn't just surface level. It was a significant, in-depth understanding of one another, making those decisions about will we be compatible for one another, right? Now, we met, we fell in love very quickly, we got engaged, it took forever to actually get married, but the thing was, we knew one another, right? And we knew that we loved one another, and we knew that our relationship was going to be used to God's glory in one way or the other, So we were ready to move forward, and that's what we did. But we could never have done it knowing each other for five minutes at a time, right? That's what happens when you come to church and then leave. You're not getting to know your brothers and sisters. You're missing that opportunity to grow together in love for one another and the unity of the church. Paul didn't wanted to encourage. He struggled to encourage people. He struggled to see them encouraging one another. He struggled to see the unity of the church. And his struggle manifests itself in his perpetual work for the church through teaching and explaining how Jesus was the Christ and instructing on how to live faithfully. Paul's struggle for believers resulted in his being stoned, repeatedly imprisoned, whipped, and eventually in his death. So why was he willing to struggle to that extent for the people of God to be knit together in unity and love for Christ? Because he wanted them to be fully assured. Our assurance, guys, grows when we communicate about it to one another. If you're living in a silo, you know what you know, and that's all you know. 
when you are sharing with one another, you continue to help each other grow in your assurance of your salvation. He wanted them to be assured of what they believed and why they believed it. He knew that when it comes to understanding the gospel and loving God, we are of great help and encouragement to one another. The goal of his struggle is that they have full assurance that in Jesus we have all wisdom and knowledge, which brings us to our second lesson. Why Christians must correctly understand the gospel. And this comes out of verse 4. Without a correct understanding of the gospel, we are all subject to being deceived. In Genesis 3, and I'd ask that you guys turn there with me this morning, please. While you're turning there, I'll kind of give you a little bit of an idea there. We read, about, we read about the first account of God's people being deceived by a crafty creature who desired to usurp the authority of God by deceiving his people. The serpent deceived Adam and Eve, and their failure resulted in sin entering into the world. The sin of Adam impacts every single one of us, from the youngest child to the oldest person alive. We are all guilty of sin because of what Adam did. But what I want to focus on right here is the failure of Eve. And I want to do that as an example of how we should respond when faced with temptation and deceit. Because remember, why is Paul doing this? Why does he want to see them united? He wants them to be able to deal with the, the attacks that Satan is going to send their way. So you've got your Bibles open to Genesis 3.1. Stand up with me. And let's read first just verse 1a. He, the serpent, said to the woman, Did God actually say, say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Now, I'm going to keep you standing here because we're going to read some more in a second. But what Satan, when Satan asked his first question, he already knew the answer. And he asked it in a way that should have been a red flag for Eve. Eve knew that he was incorrectly quoting God's words, that he was twisting it just a little bit. And she even clarified it. Let's read on. And the woman, Eve, said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But what did she not do? She did not follow through and disengage from that conversation. Rather, she left the door open for him to follow up with a comment that played on her desire to be like God. And when he said, You surely will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The result was her breaking the one commandment that God had placed on her. Go ahead and have a seat, please. Believers, when you face temptation... Do not continue to give it your time. Avoid it if you can see it coming. If you can't see it coming and it's already on top of you, disengage from it. And if you have to, flee from it. Whatever it takes, don't play with temptation. 
In the centuries that followed that first deception, there have been a continual effort on Satan's part to deceive the people of God. And one of his successes has been to continue to use or continue to take the truth of the word of God and twist it ever so slightly to create what Paul refers to in verse 4 as plausible arguments. The most dangerous false teachings are those that seem plausible. A plausible argument is one with some elements of truth to it. If the hearer is not well-rooted in their understanding of the gospel, they can be deceived by that argument. That's why it's important to spend time in the Word and under solid teaching. It reinforces your understanding, and it reduces your likelihood of being deceived. So again, the value of being united, the value of loving one another here and spending the time talking about these things when you're not here. Now, it may be tempting to think, you know, and this is, here's an example of one of those plausible arguments, right? It may be tempting to think that Christ's work on our behalf is needed just to get us started in our spiritual journey, right? In our quest for godliness. But we must move beyond that to a new doctrine, a new person, or practice, some new practice to reach advanced spirituality. After all, can faith in Christ alone be enough to save us? Shouldn't we have to do something to earn the favor of a holy God? Paul's answer to this plausible argument is a resounding no. Paul has spent the previous portion of this book demonstrating the fact that believers were brought to life through the Spirit of Jesus and it is our continual confirmation of Jesus' identity and work that enables us to discern falsehood even when it is delivered very persuasively. As John Calvin writes, those who are not satisfied with Christ are exposed to all fallacies and deceptions. So a word of warning. Satan's efforts to deceive will never end. Believers, do not become complacent. Please do not feel that I've been a believer for a very long time. I've read the Word of God numerous times. I'm very comfortable in it. It's okay if I have a skip day today. right? Or, you know what, I'm kind of busy. I'll get around to praying later or reading later. Don't do that, please. Because you know what? You may have other things that are keeping you distracted, but Satan is like... I'm, Pastor Travis preached about it months ago. It's constant wall. It's like water. It's constantly pushing. That pressure is always going to be there, and it's never going to go away. And if you aren't constantly in the Word and under good teaching, you're going to be subject to those deceptions. So please do not feel that just because you've been a believer for a long time that you can skip days or you don't need to spend time in your Word. And we can see an example that Paul said in Romans 16, 19. He's addressing a group that he describes as obedience to, obedient to Christ. He says that their obedience is so much that it is known to all, right? These are a, a, it's a good group of solid believers. Their, their faith is known to all. It consisted of a group that Paul rejoiced over due to their obedience. But he also knew that they could be deceived if they were not well-rooted in the Word. 
And in verse 17, Paul warns them, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. And then he gives a command, two words, avoid them. So please do not neglect your word. You must have a correct understanding of the doctrine that Paul was talking about if you're going to stand against it. Now, I shared my draft of this sermon with Anthony, and he responded with how he loves the way Paul makes the contrasting comparison between the plausible arguments and the knowledge and wisdom that is found only within the person of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That is what Paul is struggling for. He wanted all believers to have the wisdom and knowledge that is found only in Christ and to be prepared to fend off plausible arguments. Notice Paul's charge here is not to the pastor and elders of the church alone. He's writing to the body. He's writing to every member of the church. And we all have a responsibility to grow in our understanding of God's word and be prepared to recognize and fend off any arguments that may be designed to challenge our faith. As elders, we are here to help you, and we pray weekly for all of your spiritual growth. But your responsibility is your responsibility. You have to spend time in the Word. You have to spend time listening to the wisdom of God's Word taught by solid teachers. Now, as we've read, Paul struggled to see believers grow in their knowledge of and love for our Savior. He was passionate about it. If you have someone in your life who's passionate in this way for you, let me encourage you to recognize their value and be grateful for them, as I am and have been and always will be for Suzette. When we are grateful for someone, we want, them, we want to be an encouragement to them the same way they are for us. We want to encourage them to continue loving and serving. And that brings us to our final lesson for today. Our correct understanding of the gospel is an encouragement to those who give themselves to sharing it with us. Paul was a man who, after his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, completely gave his life to the service of the Lord and the Lord's people. When he arrived at Damascus, Paul was blind and waiting for Ananias as he had been instructed by the Lord. For his part, Ananias, when given the revelation of the Lord that he was to pray for Paul to receive his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit, was a bit hesitant, right? Paul's reputation preceded him, and Ananias wanted to make sure that he was understanding exactly what God wanted him to do here, right? I mean, think about that, right? You have a government official that's running around throwing Christians in prison, and now the Spirit's telling you, hey, I want you to go tell that government official, share the Holy Spirit with him, pray with him, that he'll receive the Holy Spirit. I think most of us are going to probably pray that prayer a couple of times, right? Just to make sure we got, we're hearing what we think the Lord is trying to tell us to do. Um, in response, the Lord told Ananias that Saul was, and I quote, a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. He also told Ananias that I will show him how much he must suffer 
for the sake of my name. And the suffering Paul endured was extreme. Let's turn together one more time, this time to 2 Corinthians 11. And I'll ask one more time for you to stand with me. And we will read together, beginning in verse 24. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, Danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Please be seated. I don't think Paul wrote this to tell us how tough he was. Although I do believe he's probably one of the toughest men to ever live. I mean, imagine. He got stoned and he got up and walked out. Right? He was an incredible man. But it wasn't about Paul. You see what he was anxious for? He was anxious for the churches. Paul's heart for the churches never, never, ever slackened. God had promised Abraham that he would be a blessing to all nations. And Paul's reason for living was to be an instrument used to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And he did it with every ounce of energy he had, regardless of the suffering that it required. And it encouraged him to continue in his service when he saw the benefits of his labors for the Lord and for his church. You can see the joy Paul has to hear of the good order and firmness of your faith in Christ in verse 4 of our passage this morning. Seeing their love for God and for one another encourages him to continue in his struggle for them. And like Paul, there are men today who love the Lord and his church and answer the call to commit their lives to him, to serving him and his church. We are blessed with one of those men in Pastor Travis. While his trials and tribulations are not the same as those faced by our big brother Paul, he still faces them. And he is committed regardless of what may happen, to serving this church and the members of it. God has blessed us with him, and I believe we, by demonstrating our faith, can encourage him, right? And so I made a list of things that we can do, and it's just to get you guys started thinking, right? So what is it we do that it can encourage our pastor? How about the fact that our striving to live lives that reflect the holiness of God regardless of how imperfect that reflection may be, they demonstrate that God is using Travis's teaching about the importance of doing so. That's encouraging for him. 
being united in our love for Jesus and one another, the family, as Travis is constantly calling us, we confirm that his work for the Lord is not in vain. By living lives faithful to our Lord and Savior, we encourage our pastor and fill his heart with joy, inspiring him to continue in his pursuit of serving God with his whole life. And finally, by coming alongside one another and providing spiritual and physical help in times of need, we are demonstrating our appreciation for the fact that Travis spends time in prayer, visiting, counseling, mentoring, and preparing to share the word with all of us. Now, I want to encourage each of you guys to add to that list for yourselves. Right? That's a, a list I came up with. So look for ways to encourage your pastor. Go on, be creative. Right? The goal here is for him to see that the work God has called him to is not fruitless. That it is having an effect. Just like Paul was pointing to the church and showing how the teaching of Ephesus was correct and true based on the growth that they were seeing. So let's grow in our relationships with Christ. It's my belief that when Travis sees the fruit of his labor, he's encouraged to serve both Jesus and this body. And I base that belief on verse 5b, where Paul uh, shows us the impact that a church loving the Lord and one another can have on the one who is called to share it with, with, with the gospel with them when he says, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And in closing, let me encourage each of you to give our pastor something to rejoice about. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just come before you this morning. I am so grateful for so many things that you do to make it possible for us to gather. Lord, and I pray that the significance of us encouraging one another and joining our hearts together in love, Lord, and helping one another to grow in our faith will be something that's important, as important for each of us as it was for Paul. Lord, fill us with a desire to see your people grow. Fill us with a desire for your word, Lord, that we might constantly be in it, looking and seeking for how we can love and serve you better. In Jesus' name, amen.